We're looking at John chapter 2, verses 13 to 22. God does speak it to us. He shows us his son. Uh, He works by his spirit through his word. So let's ask him uh, to work in us so that we'll understand and be shaped by him. Let's pray. Father, please do open our thoughts and wills and consciences and passions uh, to your truth. Uh, please do help us to understand. Uh, please do work through our understanding into the rest of us by your Spirit, um, into our heads and hearts, and into our lives. And we do ask it in Jesus. Amen. Hey, okay, here's a picture of the temple Jesus went into. Well, actually, it's not really the one he visited. It was destroyed. This is a model of the one he visited. Uh, the real thing was huge, but the most important thing about it was not its size. The most important thing was that God lived there among his people. Uh, he was there, and it was where people met with him. They prayed to him, they sacrificed to him, they praised him. But that's not what we just read about Jesus doing in the temple. If you're curious but not yet committed, this is a side of Jesus you might not have come across before. If you're convinced and committed, this is a side of Jesus we need to see and allow to echo in our attitude to him and in everything that our attitude to everything that aims to push him from the center. Can I say something obvious, though, as we start? We're reading John, not Matthew, Mark, or Luke. I need to say the obvious because Matthew, Mark, and Luke mention a similar event. Uh, Some people think it's the same event, and John mentions it earlier uh, in his history, just out of of timeline. Uh, Now, there's no issue with him doing that. Authors, writers, uh, they can choose to mention what they mention um, at, at whatever stage. But John does seem to be putting things in order. He's been saying things like, the next day, the next day, the next day, after a few days, Passover was near. And in these first four chapters, he tells us about things from a time in Jesus' life that the other gospel writers don't talk about. It's hard to explain why John would grab something from later in Jesus' life that the others talk about and just drop it into the middle of all these things that he's mentioned that the other writers haven't mentioned. It seems more likely that Jesus cleared the temple twice, uh, that the other writers mention when he did it not long before his trial and crucifixion. Uh, John talks about that Passover year all the way in chapter 11. He mentions another Passover year in chapter 6, and then this one, this Passover, in chapter 2. So it's at least two years before the other event that the the other writers talk about. The overlap in terms of what they say is just what happens when writers talk about similar events. There's an inevitable overlap of details when there's a similar thing happens different times, similar details. But what's the important thing to notice is that there's a different focus. The other gospel writers mentioned Jesus quoting Isaiah, but Isaiah said about God's house being called a house of prayer for all nations and then accusing the traders and money changers of making it a den of robbers. Their focus is on overpriced sacrificial animals, unfair exchange rates, and the impact of a noisy marketplace 
on the ability of Gentiles to have used this space to pray. But we're not reading the other gospel writers. We're reading what John wrote. Now, I'm just spending this little bit of time on this uh, because I want you to understand why I'm not going to pull in the things from what the other writers say. John doesn't include things about the nations or robbers. So I won't be talking about that. We're going to focus and hear what God says through John. So let's get into the story about Jesus driving traitors out of the temple. Just before the bit we read is the story of the first sign which pointed to Jesus' glory. Jesus changed water into an extravagantly enormous quantity of top quality wine. The sign pointed to Jesus' glory as the maker, as the one who is full of grace and truth, that he brings his people into the rich blessing of being God's people. Jesus did the sign in Cana and went from there to Capernaum and on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. He didn't stay there long because, verse 13, Passover was near. Uh, Passover was one of, those great, one of the great feasts that God gave his people in the Old Testament. And Jesus went to Jerusalem to celebrate it. When he got there and walked into the temple, he saw people selling oxen and sheep and pigeons. And he saw people, money changers. Now, both were doing useful trading. Jesus himself had just journeyed 160 kilometers from Capernaum down uh, to Jerusalem. Uh, Many others had traveled further. Uh, Some had traveled for hundreds of kilometers from, from, from distant countries. It wasn't practical to bring animals for sacrifice with them. Even if they tried, if the animal was injured on the way, any blemish would mean it couldn't be used for sacrifice. So it's much easier for worshippers to sell their animals in their hometowns and cities and then buy animals for sacrifice nearer the temple. It was useful to be able to buy oxen and sheep and pigeons for sacrifice. The same goes for the money changers. They, they provided a useful service. People arrived with coins in their local currencies, but they needed to pay a temple tax in Turian silver. That's the only coin that the temple accepted because of its silver content. So it was useful to be able to exchange coins from other countries for Tyrian coins. Now, there was a time when all that business was done on the sort of lower slopes of the Mount of Olives before kind of rising up into Jerusalem. At some stage, the, the traders had moved into Jerusalem, uh, to the edge of the temple, and now into the temple, in the temple itself. You can imagine that's only, that can only be good for business, not losing out business to, to other, other people. But Jesus doesn't think it's good. He uses some cords of rope to make a whip. Uh, with the whip, he drives the animal sellers and the money changers and the sheep and the oxen out of the temple. He spills the money changers' coins on the ground, knocks their tables over. It's intense to think of what he did. Imagine the energy and effort he put behind his improvised whip and whatever other words he spoke as he chased people and animals out of the temple. Listen to what Jesus says about why he did it. Verse 16. He tells the pigeon sellers, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. See, it's not the trade he's objecting to. 
There's nothing said here about fair or unfair prices or, or exchange rates. The issue is where they are trading. In the temple. In his father's house. And that's not what it's for. The temple was the place where God dwelt among his people, uh, the place that God provided himself to dwell among them. They met with him there. They prayed to him there. They brought sacrifices that he required for forgiveness there. They offered thanksgiving sacrifices there. They spoke and sang praise and thanks to him there. It was a holy place. It was set apart, separate, special for those things and those things only. Not for other things. It was not a place for trade. So when people saw Jesus, when, when Jesus saw people using it that way, he drove the traders out. Now it's interesting that he that he he calls the temple my father's house. You may remember the writers already referred to God as Jesus' father a few times. Uh, we've heard both John the Baptist and Nathaniel call Jesus the Son of God. And those previous weeks I talked about how the Son of God is another way that the Bible uses uh, to talk about the Christ, the Messiah. So the way Jesus talks about the temple as his father's house, it hints at who he is as the Son of God, the Christ. And in verse 17, the disciples remember part of a psalm. I wonder if one of the reasons why they thought about it is because they recognized in Jesus, the Son of God, the same zeal for God's temple that they'd read about in King David, who wrote the psalm that says, zeal for your house has consumed me. They're seeing the similarity. Jesus' disciples remembered it when they saw Jesus' zeal for the temple, when they saw his jealous protection of its holy purpose, not for trade. Just like the ancient King David, the Christ is zealous for his father's house and jealous to protect its holy purpose. See see what's going on? Jesus drove the traitors out because they shouldn't have been using his father's holy house for common trade. And Jesus' disciples see Jesus' zeal and jealous protection for God's house as he does it as a Christ-like, oh sorry, a Christ-quality. Then verse 18, the Jews show up. Uh, Presumably the higher-up Jews, uh, the temple authorities, because they ask Jesus, what sign do you show us for doing these things? They want Jesus to do a sign to to prove that he has the authority for what he did. Maybe they know he's right. He was right. The traitor should never have been allowed uh, to trade inside God's holy temple. But their issue isn't whether he was right or not. They want to know, they're asking what evidence Jesus has to show that he is the one who, he is the one with the right to stop it. They want evidence that Jesus has the right to be the one to stop it. See, Moses did signs to prove God really sent him to Israel uh, and to bring them out of Egypt, to the nation of Israel to bring them out of Egypt. Uh, They want Jesus to do a sign to prove that God sent him to clean up the temple. So Jesus gives them a sign. Jesus gives them a sign to prove that he's the one with authority. He says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. 
Immediately, uh, they think about walls and stones and say, it has taken 36 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? They're thinking this is impossible. Even if they were able to destroy it, there would be no way that a 46 years to build temple could be rebuilt in three days. I'm thinking it wouldn't have been a problem. It's easy enough to think that as readers. You know, we've just seen Jesus make water into wine. He could easily make rubble into temple. After all, he is the one through whom all things were made. Universe. He is the one through whom all things were made that have been made. If they had destroyed the temple and given him three days to, to rebuild it, he could have done it. But Jesus wasn't talking about walls and stones. He wasn't offering to do a trick. He wasn't talking about walls and stones he stood among. He was talking about his own flesh, blood, and bones. Verse 21, he was speaking about the temple of his body. Uh, When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. John just tells us, without giving us a spoiler alert, this is what's going to happen at the end. But what's going to happen at the end is Jesus dead and raised. And after that happens, the disciples will go, now we get it. Jesus put to death by the Jews. Jesus rising again to life. When the the disciples saw Jesus dead and raised to life again, they remembered what he said and they believed the scripture and the word Jesus spoke. So let's go back again and look a little bit more carefully at the scripture verse the disciples thought of after Jesus drove the traitors and the animals out from the temple. Verse 17, zeal for your house will consume me. Now I've tended to think of this sentence as saying, Jesus' zeal has increased and increased and increased until it is the thing that controls him. As if if they're saying there's nothing else that he can do but guard his father's temple jealously. But actually the verse is talking about something else. Zeal for his father's house has eaten him up. It's always worth um, looking looking to where the Old Testament verses uh, come from that the New Testament quotes. And this this line from Psalm 69 verse 9 is no different. Uh, So here it is with a little context. Um, When we see these words in the psalm, uh, they come from, it's, it's not about how much zeal he has. It's about what happened to him because of his zeal. The writer says it is because of his zeal for God and his house that he himself has been consumed. I've highlighted the, the zeal and the consumed in verses 9 to 11, Psalm 69 verses 9 to 11. Uh, so I'll, I'll read it. Have, just look at it with me. Should be a color version after this. Um, for zeal for your house has consumed me. The reproaches of those who reproach you, my God, have fallen on me. Consumed. Uh, when I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, part of his zeal, I became, it became my reproach. Consumed. When I made sackcloth my clothing, part of his zeal, I became a byword to them. Consumed. You see, King David 
experienced opposition and suffering because of his zeal for God and his house. And it's the same for God's Christ. Jesus' disciples saw his zeal, and we're getting a glimpse of what it will cost him when he goes to the cross. This verse is one of the scriptures the disciples believed when Jesus was raised from the dead. They saw his suffering through this lens. It's suffering not because he's not God's person, but actually because he is so zealous for God as God's person. But it's not just about his suffering, it's also his resurrection. Because Psalm 69, the the whole psalm is full of hope. So the first line of the psalm, there's another slide, the first line line of the psalm is, Save me, O God. The cry in the middle of it is, uh, At an acceptable time, O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. Let your salvation, O God, set me on high. And then the confidence at the end of the psalm is, God will save Zion and build up the cities of Judah, and the people shall dwell there and possess it. The offspring of his servants shall inherit it, and those who love his name shall dwell in it. See, the psalm they remembered spoke about Christ's suffering and death because of his zeal for his father's house, but also his eternal inheritance as a person who loves the Lord's name. When Jesus, therefore, was raised from the dead, his disciples believed the scripture. They believed the scripture and the word of Jesus, the word that Jesus had spoken. Jesus had said, verse 19, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews did destroy the temple of his body. And he did raise up his body, flesh, blood, and bones on the third day. It was his physical resurrection from physical death that opened the disciples' understanding of what Jesus said. When they saw it fulfilled, they recognized and understood it. And they believed the word that Jesus had spoken. What did they believe when they saw Jesus, who had been crucified, standing in front of them, alive again? Well, they believed what they saw. What they, saw. they believed he was alive again. And they believed what he had said. That he is the new temple. They believed that the holy temple that matters is no longer the temple of walls and stones. The new and better and eternal temple is the temple of flesh, blood, and bones. Jesus himself is the new temple. His body has replaced that old temple that God gave Israel. Now, by the time John wrote, um, the, the, the temple in Jerusalem had already been destroyed by, by, by the Roman army. It had been in ruins for years and years. But long before it was destroyed in 70 AD, Jesus' disciples knew that it was obsolete and spiritually irrelevant. Jesus' body. Jesus' body offered up in sacrifice and raised up in power. His body is the new temple where God and humanity, creator and creature, meet face to face. That means no building can ever be God's temple again. 
We must not go to a building to meet with God because there is no building he lives in. We must not imagine religion or ritual or ceremony or experience or musical atmosphere are a place to meet with God because now we must go to Jesus. Jesus, the Lamb of God, sacrificed once to bring forgiveness. Jesus, the house of God, in whom we meet his Father as our Father. Jesus, the one through whom we, pre- we present the thank offering of our lives, lived to please our Heavenly Father. Jesus, the one in whom we draw near to God to speak and sing our prayers and praise and thanks. Old Testament believers, they, they met with and, and they prayed to and they sacrificed to and they thanked and praised God in his temple. Now the Lord Jesus has come. The walls and stones are irrelevant. Jesus is the temple and sacrifice for forgiveness. And we draw near to God in him. We offer our lives in thanks to God who saved us. We pray to and thank and praise our Father in Christ. When his disciples saw Jesus raised from the dead, they remembered what he had said, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. God speaks this passage to us to show us his son, our Lord Jesus Christ, so that we'll see him as one whose zeal for God and his house resulted in him, he himself being consumed, consumed in death. Yet Jesus' own word and the word of the scriptures was fulfilled because not only did he suffer, he was raised. He lives. Seeing Jesus as one who died and is raised again is the key that unlocks Psalm 69. It's the key that unlocks what Jesus says here in this little section. Seeing Jesus as the one who died and is raised again is the key that unlocks so much of Old Testament Scripture. So much of what Jesus said and taught. By unlocking that psalm written a thousand years before Jesus' birth, it lets us see Jesus suffer because of, because of his zeal for his father and his house. And seeing, see Jesus suffer with confidence that God would raise him. And unlocking his own words to us, it trains us to see him as the unique and only place where we can meet with God. That's something to delight in. That he is the place where we can meet with God. He far surpasses what came before. Be rubbish to get into the original version of that building that I showed you at the start. So much better to meet with God in Jesus. In Revelation chapter 22, uh, the, the same John who wrote this gospel, uh, he glimpses the eternal, the eternal fulfillment of this at Jesus' return. He describes a city that's the, the same shape as the, the center of, of the temple, uh, the most holy place. Uh, 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 the, the place where God dwells uh, with radiance and gold and jewels, he describes it. But then he says, at the center of the city, he saw no temple. For its temple is the Lord God and the Almighty, the Almighty and the Lamb. See, then 
we will see our Savior and our God face to face. Now already we draw near to the living, true and holy God in heaven through his Son who sits at God's right hand. But we wait. We wait for the unblemished, untarnished, unshielded enjoyment of the transcendent glory of God. We wait in a world full of claims there is no God to draw near to and invitations to draw near to other gods and offers of places, religion, ritual, ceremony, experience or musical atmosphere to bring people near to those gods and even more shockingly offers of places, religion, ritual, ceremony, experience or musical atmosphere to bring people near to the living, true, and holy God. How must Jesus feel about all those things that convince people in their heads and their hearts that they have met with God, but shift away from meeting God in him? It all deserves to be driven out as undeserving, Because any move away from Jesus is a move away from God. How should we feel about all those things that convince people in their heads and hearts that they have met with God but shift away from meeting God in Jesus? It all deserves to be driven out as undeserving because away from Jesus is away from God. I'm not suggesting you and I buy some rope, make some whips, and drive others out. But the truth we encounter here can grow in us a zeal and holy jealousy which sees all other ways to meet with God in the same way Jesus sees them. And that zeal will drive our decisions. It will drive us to prayer It will make us bold to keep putting the focus on Jesus. You and I need that focus in our hearts to realize that always and only our relationship with God is in Christ Jesus. He brings us near. He shows us the Father. He assures us of the Father's love. The only place you get to meet with God is in Christ Jesus. It's not just you. It's everyone. It's one another. It's Christian friends. It's maybe Christian friends. It's friends with other faiths. It's friends with no faith. When we see these things the way Jesus sees them, it will fill us with grief and sorrow and jealousy for people to truly meet the living, true, and holy God. And jealousy for Christ's glory and honor as the one person in whom we can truly draw near to God. The whip we wield is the word of God. Uh, Spoken with gentleness and respect and a holy jealousy to drive out false thoughts and false claims. The warning we hear 
is that our zealous speech will bring a faint echo of Christ's suffering. A zeal for our Savior eats us up. And our glorious hope is that he will raise us up and bring us into that unshielded enjoyment of our Father's presence. Let's pray. Our glorious Father, we do thank you for your Son. Thank you that uh, in him we do get to draw near to you. To draw near to you, the holy God, knowing there's forgiveness because Jesus offered himself. To come with confidence, to meet with you in Jesus pray to you, to trust you, to praise you, to come knowing all the sacrifice has been paid for forgiveness, but offering uh, our lives lived to please you, knowing that as we present it to you in Christ, you are pleased. Father, please help us to enjoy the goodness of who Jesus is to us. Please do give us this holy jealousy, the zeal for him to be known and recognized as the one Savior, the one sacrifice, the one temple, the one place uh, where men, women, and children can meet with you. Father, we do ask uh, for those you've placed us among, uh, for people among around Australia and the nations, uh, that uh, your the word of the cross, the word about Jesus, uh, would conquer false thoughts and false claims, that Christ would be honored, that people would be saved, and be prepared for his return. It's in him we pray. Amen.